Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Bid Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Bidem Yologide. On this episode, I will discuss what happened in Crimea back in 2014, the context of Russia's President Putin's actions regarding Ukraine, the demands that have been made by both Russia and Ukraine, the divisions among leaders of Western countries regarding how to handle the Russia-Ukraine situation, and the potential cybersecurity consequences of a likely Russian invasion of Ukraine. Clearly, there's a lot to cover in this episode. Thank you for your time. Let's get to it. So to start with, I'll talk about Crimea, which is basically the starting jump-off point for this um, entire episode. So in late February 2014, Ukraine's Maidan revolution ended when former President Viktor Yanukovych fled to Russia and the Ukrainian parliament appointed an acting president and an acting prime minister. So the two new leaders intended to draw Ukraine closer to Europe by signing an association agreement with the European Union. So almost immediately after that revolution ended, armed men began occupying key facilities and checkpoints on the Crimean Peninsula, which is a landform along the northern coast of the Black Sea, made up of mostly ethnic Russians with significant Ukrainian and Crimean Tatar minorities. So the armed men that occupied the peninsula were professional and well-trained based on how they handled themselves and their weapons. They wore Russian combat fatigues, but with no identifying insignia. So Ukrainians would later call them little green men. So Russia's president Putin initially denied that those little green men were Russian soldiers, but then he later admitted that they were and then awarded commendations to their commanders. During that occupation back in 2014, the sizable Ukrainian military presence in Crimea stayed in garrison because if shooting began, the Ukrainian government wanted the world to see that the Russians fired first. In addition, Ukraine's Western partners urged the government not to take precipitate action. Furthermore, since many enlisted personnel in the Ukrainian armed forces came from Crimea, Ukrainian commanders probably had less than full confidence in the reliability of their own troops. So following the occupation of Crimea, things moved very quickly. By early March 2014, Russian troops had secured the entire peninsula. And on March 6, 2014, that um, the Sup- Crimean Supreme Council voted to seek accession to Russia. So the council scheduled a referendum for March 16, 2014, which offered just two choices, either to join Russia or to return to Crimea's 1992 constitution, which gave the peninsula significant autonomy. Those who favored Crimea remaining part of Ukraine under the current constitution had no box to check on the referendum ballot. So the referendum itself on March 16, 2014, proved chaotic and took place without credible international observers. Local authorities reported a turnout of 83%, with 96.7% of them voting to join Russia. However, those numbers seemed implausible because ethnic Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars accounted for almost 40% of the peninsula's population. Two months later, in May 2014, a leaked report from the Russian President's Human Rights Council put turnout in that Crimea referendum at only 30%, with about half 
voting to join Russia. So two days after that questionable referendum, on March 18, 2014, Crimean and Russian officials signed the Treaty of Accession of the Republic of Crimea to Russia, and President Putin ratified it three days later, on March 18, 20, on March 21, 2014. So that's the kind of background information on Crimea, why Crimea has been this hotbed of chaos and confusion since back in 2014. So up next, I'll talk about the, the context behind why Russia invaded Crimea, took Crimea from Ukraine, what's, what's the background historical context behind all of this. Stay with us. Okay, so to understand the context of President Putin's actions since 2014, it's important to note that Russia has always maintained a historical claim to Crimea. After the Russo-Turkish War from 1768 to 1774, the Russians colonized Crimea during the reign of Catherine the Great. After that colonization, Russia founded the city of Sevastopol, which is the Crimean Peninsula's main port and largest city, and they founded the city to be the home port of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Following the establishment of the Soviet Union in 1921, Crimea was part of the Russian Soviet Fed Federative Socialist Republic until 1954 when it was transferred administratively to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. So in other words, Crimea's administrative governance and leadership was transferred from one state in the former Soviet Union, which was the Russian Soviet Republic, to another state in the same former Soviet Union, which was the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. So basically moving a territory from the control of one Russian, from one Soviet state to another within the same Soviet Union. So as I mentioned earlier, Crimea had an ethnic Russian majority of in 2014 of about 60% which was basically the only part of Ukraine where ethnic Russians constituted the majority. It is also true that when the Soviet Union collapsed in December 1991, the resulting independent states, including Russia and Ukraine, agreed to recognize one another in their then-existing borders, which therefore meant Crimea was part of the newly independent country of Ukraine following that administrative transfer back in 1954. So Russia's 2014 seizure of Crimea from Ukraine violated, among other agreements, the United Nations Charter, the 1975 Helsinki Final Act, the 1994 Budapest Memorandum of Security Assurances for Ukraine, and the 1997 Treaty on Friendship, Cooperation, and Partnership between Ukraine and Russia. Russia expressed concern about the fate of ethnic Russians in Crimea but no evidence showed any threats to those ethnic Russians. The Russian government justified the 2014 Crimea referendum and annexation as an act of self-determination. However, as I mentioned earlier, it appeared that well less than half of the Crimean population actually voted to join Russia. So we now know that domestic politics provided one motive behind President Putin's decision to seize Crimea. 
He returned to the presidency in 2012 with an economic situation much weaker than during his first two terms as president from 2000 to 2008. So instead of citing economic growth and rising living standards, he based much of his re-election appeal on Russian nationalism. And for him, seizing Crimea in a quick and relatively bloodless operation proved very popular with the Russian public, and his approval ratings climbed accordingly. So this is the context um, behind President Putin's actions. It's more of the historical claims, um, some some strategic thinking, some part of it include um, his popularity back home in Russia and so on. So up next, I'll be talking about the demands that have been made on both sides, both on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side, which also includes something that has to do with NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and so on. Stay with us. Okay, so following months of building and ongoing tension, U.S. President Biden said on Wednesday, January 19, that he thinks Russia will invade Ukraine and he warned President Putin that he would regret doing so if he does so. Over the past several months, Russia has amassed an estimated 100,000 troops along its border with Ukraine. In mid-January, Russia began moving troops into Belarus, a neighboring country that shares borders with both Russia and Ukraine, in preparation for joint military exercises in February. Putin has issued various security demands to the U.S. before he draws his armed forces back. His list includes legal assurances that Ukraine will not be allowed to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and an agreement that NATO will roll back troops and military infrastructure from parts of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet countries of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. However, NATO and U.S. officials have so far refused those demands, citing them as non-starters. President Putin views Ukraine as part of Russia's sphere of influence, as a territory rather than an independent state. Therefore, this sense of ownership has driven the Russian government to try to block Ukraine from joining the EU and NATO. However, Ukraine's government has said that it will apply for EU membership in 2024 and also has ambitions to join NATO. Western countries have imposed mostly symbolic sanctions against Russia for its role in a 2018 Norwegian attack on a former Russian spy and his daughter in the UK the interference in the 2020 U.S. presidential elections and its role in wide-ranging cyber attacks against U.S. companies and federal agencies in December of 2020, among other transgressions. Russia has regularly denied involvement in all of those incidents, despite evidence to the contrary. So next, I'll be talking about the divisions between the leaders of the Western countries regarding how they would approach the Russia-Ukraine situation. Stay with us. Okay, so interestingly... President Putin's decision to engage in a military buildup 
along the border with Ukraine is connected to a sense of impunity. Basically, he believes he can get away with it if he goes ahead with it. President Putin also has experience dealing with Western politicians who champion Russian interests and become involved with Russian companies once they leave office. In several instances, Putin has seen that some leading Western politicians actually align with Russia and that those alliances are likely to prevent Western governments from forging a unified front against Putin. For example, former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder advocated for strategic cooperation between Europe and Russia while he was even still in office. After he left office, he joined the Russian oil company Rosneft as chairman in 2017. Other senior European politicians who promoted a soft position toward Russia while in office are the former French Prime Minister Francois Fillon and the former Austrian Foreign Minister Karin Neisel. Both of them joined the boards of Russian state-owned companies after they left office. So as Russia continues to send additional troops and weaponry to the Ukraine border, there seems to be some divisions among Western allies about how to respond to Russia's aggression. While Western governments have all promised a tough response, the UK and US have gone furthest in pledging crippling economic sanctions and indicating that Russia indeed has invasion plans and is seeking to install a pro-Russia leader in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. On the other hand, Germany's naval chief was forced to resign after stating that Putin deserved respect and suggesting that the German government should join forces with Putin's government against China. In addition, the new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has called for prudence in applying sanctions against Russia. Also of note is that Germany has refused to provide Ukraine with military support in contrast to the US and UK. Germany reportedly blocked Estonia from sending German-made weapons to Ukraine. Also recently, Germany denied a UK military plane access to its airspace. The military plane was going to supply defensive weapons to Ukraine. So while the US and UK favor more punitive action against Russia's economy in the event of a military invasion of Ukraine, there is hesitation in some European countries because of economic or diplomatic reasons. In Germany's case as Europe's de facto leader, the government is reluctant to see sanctions imposed on Nord Stream 2, which is its giant gas pipeline project with Russia that will supply Germany and much of Europe with natural gas. Leading sanctions experts argue that the West could potentially change Putin's calculations if Western governments were prepared to impose severe sanctions on critical Russian financial institutions such as VTB, Sberbank, and Gazprombank, and also on energy exports similar to what was done to Iran. However, except for Nord Stream 2, the US government has already indicated that it will seek to exempt Russia's energy sector from the punitive measures currently being prepared. So up next, I'll be talking about the cybersecurity consequences of a potential Russia invasion of Ukraine. Stay with us.
On January 14, hackers defaced dozens of government websites in Ukraine, which was a technically simple but attention-grabbing move that generated global headlines. More quietly, during that cyber attack, the hackers placed destructive malware inside Ukrainian government agency networks. It is unclear who is responsible, but Russia seems to be the leading suspect. So while Ukraine continues to feel the brunt of Russia's aggressions and cyber attacks, experts are worried that the offensive actions in cyberspace could spill out globally, threatening Europe, the US, and beyond. On January 18, the US Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, warned critical infrastructure operators to take urgent near-term steps against cyber threats, citing the recent attacks against Ukraine as a reason to be on high alert for possible threats to US assets. The agency also referred to two cyber attacks from 2017, referred to as the NotPetya and WannaCry cyber attacks, which both spiraled out of control from their initial targets and spread rapidly around the world at a cost of billions of dollars. Again, the correlations are crystal clear. NotPetya was a Russian cyber attack aimed at Ukraine during a time of high tensions. Offensive cyber operations are increasingly being used in hybrid military engagements. They can be conducted against NATO allies as the situation between Russia and Ukraine further deteriorates, especially if Western governments take a more aggressive stance against Russia. Incidentally, that scenario looks increasingly possible. On January 19, U.S. President Biden said that the U.S. could respond to future Russian cyber attacks against Ukraine with its own cyber capabilities, which further increases the possibility of the conflict spreading into cyberspace. So the knock-on effect of aggressive cyber operations for the rest of the world might not be limited to intentional reprisals by Russian operatives. Moreover, unlike old-fashioned war, cyber war is not confined by borders and can easily spiral out of control. Ukraine has been on the receiving end of aggressive Russian cyber operations for the last decade and has suffered invasions and military interventions from Russia since 2014. In 2015 and 2016, Russian hackers attacked Ukraine's power grid and turned out the lights in Kiev. The 2017 NotPetya cyber attack, once again carried out with the approval of the Russian government, was initially directed at private companies in Ukraine before it spilled over and destroyed computer networks around the world. NotPetya disguised itself as ransomware, but was in fact a purely destructive and highly viral piece of code, also known as a wiper. The destructive malware seen in Ukraine on January 15, 2022, now known as Whispergate, also pretended to be ransomware while aiming to wipe critical data that then rendered devices inoperable. Russia has of course once again denied involvement and no definitive links point to the Russian government being responsible. Back in 2017, North Persia incapacitated shipping ports and left several giant multinational corporations and government agencies unable to function. In addition, almost every company that did business in Ukraine was affected because the Russian hackers poisoned the software used by entities that pay taxes or conduct business in Ukraine. 
since 2017, there has been an ongoing debate about whether the international victims were merely unintentional collateral damage or whether the attack targeted companies doing business with Russia's enemies. What is clear, however, is that it can and will likely happen again. So to wrap up, I talked about what happened in Crimea back in 2014, the context of President Putin's actions regarding Ukraine, the demands that have been made by both Russia and Ukraine, the divisions among leaders of Western countries regarding how to handle the Russia-Ukraine situation, and the potential cybersecurity consequences of a likely Russian invasion of Ukraine. Ultimately, regardless of analyst predictions, only President Putin knows what President Putin will do. Some people have predicted that he seems to be posturing in the hopes of getting concessions out of the US and NATO. Others have said that regardless of the outcomes of diplomatic talks, Putin will invade Ukraine, but not before or during the upcoming Winter Olympic Games in Beijing, which is going to take place from February 4 to February 20. The Chinese government has said that they did not make any special request regarding the Winter Olympic Games to President Putin's actions regarding Ukraine. In other words, no one knows anything, which incidentally plays into Putin's hands. So by controlling the information space, he appears to hold several aces up his sleeve and all we can do is watch and wait and watch some more and wait some more. So that's all I have for this episode 107 of the Beat Picture Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Beat Picture Podcast is produced by Sunshine Media in association with Alowinly Productions. Fact-checking by Zara Kuznetsova. Audio engineer, Sergey Gorsky. Graphic design, Stacey Graham. Senior producer, Abidemi Ologunde. Executive producers, Olufolani Ologunde and Toby Loba Ologunde. Please join me again on the next episode as I continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity's news, events, and incidents, and the lessons we can learn from them for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness in our daily lives. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the Beat Picture Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, please share the show with anyone that you think might benefit from it. For questions, comments, or any suggestions, please send an email to bdme at thebeatpicture.com. You can also get in touch on Twitter at BeatPicture, on the Clubhouse app at Beat, as well as on the Wisdom app at BDME. Please remember to leave a review for the podcast if your platform allows you to do so. Thank you for your time. See you on the next episode. Bye for now.